Hi, and welcome to the State of Shakespeare. I am Jim Elliott. And I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And today on the program, we have Vilma Silva from the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Hello, Vilma. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for joining us today. I'm just thrilled to be talking to you today. In 21 seasons at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, Miss Silva has appeared in at least 14 Shakespeare plays, including Juliet in Romeo and Juliet, Viola in Twelfth Night, Katharina in Taming of the Shrew, Amelia in Othello, Portia in both The Merchant of Venice and Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar in Julius Caesar, Doña Capulet in Romeo and Juliet, and Goneril in King Lear, among many others. 21 season at the OSF, that's amazing. You know, it's not something that I ever expected. The festival was doing a production, their first production of a Lorca play, Blood Wedding, in 1995. And I was invited to audition for that. But at the time, I had other work lined up. I was working regionally. So I said, you know, gosh, thanks, you guys, but I really can't do it. So they said, well, hey, well, when are you available? And I said, well, the end of May. And that just happened to be when Blood Wedding was going into rehearsal. And so I was cast and I thought, well, this was fun. You know, I have a friend who lives up here and Ashland is lovely. And gosh, it was great see you later. And then they said, uh, how about 1996? How about playing Juliet? Uh-huh. <laughs> I thought, oh, now that's an offer I can't refuse. But I, I never expected to stay this long. I was working regionally and I was based in the Bay Area and everything was going great. And But I feel incredibly lucky. It's just so rare for an actor to have a home for so long. Right. Yeah. Never expected it. In fact, when I got out of school, I went to Santa Clara University and got a theater arts degree. But, you know, I didn't do any theater once I graduated from college for about seven years. You know, I was just working regular jobs, restaurant work, and I was a bank teller for a while and, you know, all the kind of stuff that everybody does. In fact, I'd worked as a bank teller for a credit union. And, you know, it's amazing how few people know how to balance a checkbook. And so, <laughs> like, in under a year, I became the head of accounting. I couldn't believe it. I mean, literally, I had my own office and two assistants. During this time, were you pursuing acting or were you just not pursuing No, acting? I wasn't pursuing acting. My husband and I had bought a house. I was pursuing a regular paycheck. <laughs> Well, that's amazing. And then a friend of mine who was involved in a small community theater nearby said, hey, you know, we're doing this production and there's a role in there for you if you wanted to. It's, you know, free. There's no pay. But I thought, okay, you know, so my husband and I were both in it and we had a blast. It was fun. And Timothy Neer, who was then the artistic director of San Jose Rep, saw it and she cast me in in work at San Jose Rep. And then, you know, it just started to leapfrog and I was able to eventually leave waiting tables and balancing checkbooks and and I've been kind of working full-time ever since. Again, I feel incredibly blessed for that. Wow. I mean, it's always that one person, that like sort of that string that catches you and you follow it and all of a sudden you're working for 21 years or, or longer. That's kind of it. You know, Timothy, I have a big debt of gratitude toward to her because she was so supportive, you know, back before people were thinking about diversity and inclusion and all these other issues, you know, non-traditional casting and all that, because I was a young Latina, but Timothy was really very early on. She just welcomed me into the San Jose Repertory Company and that, you know, exposure is what led to one thing to another to another. So, yeah. so I was reading, I was reading on Oregon Public Broadcasting, a little article that featured you and you were quoted as saying, Shakespeare, claim it, it's yours. Yes. 
Well, you know, that was really an idea that, or an idea or way of thinking that I was exposed to later on when I was performing in Shakespeare plays. You know, like like everybody, I was introduced to Shakespeare in a Shakespeare English class. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always liken my first exposure to Shakespeare like that show Numbers, kind of a detective story, detective and a brother who's a mathematician and he solves crimes by figuring out patterns. Well, that was kind of what happened with Shakespeare, was that when I first read a play, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it. I was, I was not even sure it was English. You know, it was like, I can't understand this. But I had a great teacher who, you know, encouraged us to keep trying. And then I remember that one day, and this was actually reading The Merchant of Venice, that one day when I got an idea of what was being said, I got an image and I didn't have to check and see what, what was on the other page defining what that meant. And it was as if all the numbers kind of fell into a pattern. Not only was I blown away by the image, but I was blown away by the way it was created in the way the words were put together. It just floored me. So anyway, I was able to, you know, do a play here and a play there. And then I met a Latino playwright years later who said to me, gosh, I've been wanting to meet you because, you know, I've known about you. And I thought, well, who is this Latina that's doing Shakespeare? I was just like floored by that. Why is that so strange? And I was really surprised. So the first thing I would want to say, you know, is, yeah, absolutely claim it. It's absolutely yours. You know, it doesn't belong to any specific group or any specific uh, culture or racial makeup or whatever. It's like whoever happens to like it, go for it. You know? <laughs> so at some point you really started digging Shakespeare. And then here 21 seasons later, you've just finished the 2016 season. And yes. today we'll be talking about Timon of Athens, which we, yes. we discovered <laughs> we have someone in common there. The director is Amanda Dennert. Can you tell us about the experience yeah. of working with Amanda on this play? You know, I have worked with her once before here at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. We worked on Julius Caesar, and that's when I got to play Julius Caesar. And I sent her an email because even bef months before we were to start rehearsals, I was getting requests for interviews on, so you're going to play Ju Julius Caesar, and how's that going to I sent her this email, and she sent me back this fantastic email about why she wanted me to play the role, why she wanted a woman in the role, why she wanted me in the role. And I was really impressed with her thinking process. What was your exposure to Timon of Athens before this opportunity came up? I had never even read it. You know, because you look at the cast list and go, okay, there's Timon, there's Appomantus, there's Flavius, there's all, these are all men. Okay, <laughs> who are the women? Uh, whore number one, whore number two, you know, <laughs> I just thought, oh, geez, you don't even have get Timon's wife, you know, or something. No, no, no. So I, I wasn't really thinking about it. When I went in to talk to Bill Rausch, the artistic director here at the festival, and I said, hey, I just want to be in it. I really don't care what I do as long as I get to work with Amanda again, you know. So I get this offered this role of Appomantus, a cynic. But at least I thought, okay, I'm working with Amanda. I, I find her to be an incredibly inventive, imaginative, oh my God, smart, articulate. You know, sometimes I have to make fun of her because she knows our lines better than we do in rehearsal. Hmm. I said, you're like that annoying little kid, you know, in rehearsal who knows everybody's lines. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and calls them out as you're trying to rehearse, you know. <laughs> um, but she, she does. And we call her our mad genius. We also call her our three-dimensional chess player because you realize once you get into the theater, that is really her palette. 
we've been building all the language work, all the scene work, all the staging. We've been building all that in the rehearsal hall. But then when you see what she has had in her mind all of these weeks, you see it on stage. It just, it's breathtaking. I mean, I have spoken to several people who have said to me, you know, I've seen this play two or three times. I've never understood what was going on, but wow, I really got it this time. So, Vilma, when you were approaching the role, you got cast as Epimantis. You were working with Amanda Dennert. What kind of research did you do for the role? Well, because I wasn't familiar with the play or the role, the first thing, of course, was for me to just read the whole thing. And I have to admit that I was kind of delighted with how many times I laughed out loud oh. uh, reading some of Appamantis's lines because <laughs> that's a dry humor. <laughs> um, and but it made me laugh, you know, because the comments on the society were very funny. You know, they were sharp. And then I was struck with just the list of characters, and it said Appamantis, comma a cynic. Huh. <laughs> and I thought, okay, that could be kind of reductive and not very helpful. So I started doing a little bit of reading here and there. And I started with, of course, Harold Bloom's book. I also, okay, well, what is a cynic? Define cynic. And then I, ah, cynicism is actually a school of philosophy. It's not necessarily what I take it to mean when I read a cynic. And then I started reading about the philosopher who is considered <clears throat> the inspiration for Appamantis and founded cynicism. And there were some wonderful quotes. One of the quotes that I found most inspiring was, I bite my friends to save them. Mm. And there's a lot of dog imagery in Timon of Athens. Appamantis is referred to as a dog, and cynics were referred to as dogs because of their rejection of social structure. So as a kind of a negative judgment, they were called dogs. But they kind of took on the mantle of the name and said the other thing that is true about dogs is they know who their friends are, mm -hmm. and they know who their enemies are. And outward appearance doesn't really mean anything to them. Wow. So I found kind of those two things in particular, the nature of dogs and their ability to s literally sniff out their friends. Mm -hmm. And also Diogenes' quote of, I bite my friends to save them. I found both of those things really inspiring when I started thinking about Appamantis because I think it's easy to just be an angry cynical, negative person when playing this role. And I thought, if I don't make clear why I am who I am, why I say the things that I do, then that's how I'll come across. So it became important to me to, one, show that I care about Timon and that I reject the society that he surrounds himself with, that I see something in him that is worth saving and that I see in this world something worth criticizing. And, you know, there was also something written in Harold Bloom's chapter on Appamantis, on Timon of Athens, when he wrote about Timon, he said about that final scene between Appamantis and Timon, that their argument is actually, well, here I'm going to paraphrase, mm -hmm. you know, that it's kind of elementary schoolyard. Mm. I know you are, but what am I, right? <laughs> and But I have to say that instead of discouraging me, I found that observation really encouraging because that is also true of 
friendships, that sometimes you can be petty. And I wanted that to actually be part of the scene. Why don't we just embrace the fact that sometimes they argue in a petty way? And so Tony Heald, who played Timon in this production, and I were able to find those petty moments so that then we could find the moments where we really connected as friends. And then the final rejection is all the more painful because of having found those moments. That's interesting. Did you play Appamantis as a woman or as a man? You know, that's a good question because when I asked Amanda that, she said, you're just playing the character. Neither man nor woman. We're not going to change the pronouns. You're just going to be a woman playing the role and you don't need to act like a man. Interesting. It's you. Just play the role. Yeah. So she basically said, don't think about it. Let's move on to the speech. Sure. Can you give us a little intro into what's happening here? Sure. Timon has realized that his quote-unquote friends are not his friends, and he goes from one end of the spectrum, which is doing everything for his friends, throwing great parties for his friends, to the other end of the spectrum, because they have refused to help him, of hating everyone, hating mm -hmm. mankind, hating humankind. And so Appamantis comes upon him, and for the first time, Timon speaks very sharply to Appamantis and takes him back and actually refers to him as a dog, which up until then, Timon had never used that language to Appamantis. So it sounds like Timon is feeling a little sorry for himself. Oh, yes. Spends the rest of the show feeling sorry for himself. And Which course, goes back to your schoolyard analogy. Exactly. He does. And that's why Appamantis calls him on it. Because he literally says to Appamantis, I'd be so much better if you weren't here. <laughs> and Appamantis' response is essentially, yeah, I'd be so much better if you weren't here too. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where we get into the schoolyard thing, you know. So if you're ready, would you like to do the speech? Sure thing. Great. This is Vilma Silva reading Timon of Athens, the character of Appamantis from Act 4, Scene 3. This is in the A Nature But Infected. A poor unmanly melancholy sprung from change of fortune. Why this rage, this place, this slave-like habit and these looks of care? Thy flatterers yet wear silk, drink wine, lie soft, hug their diseased perfumes and have forgot that ever time it was. Shame not these woods by putting on the color of a carper. Be thou a flatterer now, and seek to thrive by that which has undone thee. Hinge thy knee, and let his very breath whom thou'lt observe blow off thy cap. Praise his most vicious strain, and call it excellent. Thou was told thus. Thou gavest thine ears like tapsters that bid welcome to knaves and all approachers. Tis most just that thou turn rascal. Hadst thou wealth again, rascals should have it. Do not assume my likeness. Thou hast cast away thyself being like thyself. A madman so long, now a fool. What? Thinks that the bleak air, thy boisterous chamberlain, will put thy shirt on warm? Will the cold brook, candied with ice, coddle thy morning taste to cure thy ornate surfeit? 
call the creatures whose naked natures live in all the spite of reekful heaven, whose bare unhoused trunks to the conflicting elements exposed, answer mere nature, bid them flatter thee. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Boy, there's a lot to unravel in this speech. Absolutely. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, there is. Maybe before we dive into it, there are some turns of phrase and some terminology that I have questions about. Sure. Appomattis tells Timon to not to put on the color of a carper. What mm-hmm. on earth would it be to put on the color of a carper? <laughs> I think that... Yeah, it it is actually cunning of a carper. We changed it to color of a carper. What Appomantis comes in and says is, because as soon as he appears, Timon's response is, more man, plague, plague. And I say, I was directed hither. Men report thou dost affect my manners and doth use them. So what I'm saying is, don't act like me. Don't just be me. Don't just appear to be like me, someone that hates mankind. Don't just put it on. So I'm referring to myself when I say a carper. Oh. Is it derived from the word carp, to carp, to complain? Yes, although I think there was a little more to the definition of carping that I used kind of in my head. But yes, that's essentially what it what it means. Somebody who's just going to sit back and complain about everything that's going on. There are some other things that, that I'm so curious sure. about. I really love the image of a cold brook candied with, with ice. ice. Boy, that is such a vivid image. Isn't it great? It's wonderful. And then it says that it will not coddle thy morning taste Mm -hmm. to cure thy overnight's surfeit. What on earth does it mean to coddle the morning taste? What is this To cure thy overnight's surfeit? Uh (laughs) Well, the overnight surfeit is if he has been out partying, you know, and he's got a bad taste in his mouth. Ah. And so this is going to be to kind of give you a a cure, give you a little something to kind of wash away that bad taste in your mouth after a big night of partying. Right. And you know, they he's were... not going to show up with a little cup of tea for you. <laughs> and the verb here is coddle. What is coddle? Yes. That's that one that, that I'm cure. familiar with. Yep. Cure. cure. Coddle is to cure. Cure. Speaking of words, you did choose to change some. Can you talk about the changing of spade to rage and cunning to color? Sure. So... Timon was not going to have a spade to dig any holes. Timon is actually digging for roots that he can eat. And so the word that Shakespeare has is why this spade, which leads us to believe that he actually has a spade, you know, that mm-hmm. he's actually digging around for roots. And that wasn't going to be in our production. He was just surrounded, sitting literally in a pile of trash. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to not confuse an audience with referring to something that isn't there. Mm-hmm. So it became rage. And he's quite rageful when he reacts to me walking in into his space. And then cunning of a carper. You know, Amanda felt that that was just an image that was a little difficult to make clear. She and our voice and track director chose color. And then in the playing of it, I was able to physically refer to myself so that they understood it was my appearance. Gotcha. Yeah. So so yeah. It, it sort of solidifies the idea that you're referring to yourself. Yep. Well, this speech brings to mind so many others that play on the theme of determinism versus free will. And mm-hmm. Appomattis seems to be urging Timon to cast aside his scruples and take control of his own destiny here. Mm-hmm. Is Appomattis giving good advice? Is, is Appomattis, in fact, 
biting Timon to save him? Yes. I think this is very much learn how to survive this world, learn how to get past your pain and your determination to live in misery. In fact, my final line to him is, live and love thy misery. So I really did not want to just come in here and destroy him with any more. I, I really wanted to come in and say, this is the way to survive it. He's not going to be the cynic that I am. He's not going to be that person, but he can find a way to survive it. Right. And I think I'm telling him, survive it. That brings to mind the idea, uh, the word nature, Timon's nature is that he's a good guy. Mm-hmm. And you use that word a lot in the speech you just read. It's mm-hmm. in the first line, and mm-hmm. it's in the last line. Mm-hmm. It seems to me that you're using it in two different ways, though. There's nature like the woods, the forest. Yes. But there's also your nature as a person. Yes. What is Shakespeare saying about nature in the speech? Well, you know, actually, in cynicism, one of the definitions of cynicism is living in tune with nature. Uh-huh. And so that that's why cynics rejected social structure because it was artificial. And so living in tune with nature meant also living in tune with our human nature as well as the the nature that surrounds us. Very cool. And that, that goes to Garrett. Well, it's just this speech also, I feel like this speech could easily be delivered in the forest of Arden. And it just brings to mind the As You Like It, Act 2, mm. Scene 1, and the Duke's speech about the woods and how these woods are more free from perils than the envious court. But it, it's it's fun to see how these various themes sort of are, are interwoven throughout the canon. And we see characters speaking words that we could put in the mouths of other characters. Oh, yes. And I don't know that this is leading to a question, so this will probably go away, but I felt like I had to. Well, <laughs> no, you know what? I, wanted, I actually want to, to talk about that because... Our production was extreme in its imagery. People either had a love or hate kind of response to the banquet scene, which comes very early in the play, because the banquet was extreme in its imagery of total hedonistic party time. I mean, literally, there was a full-on fatted calf on the table that they ate raw. There were bowls of pills. There were, they're not quite blow-up dolls, but instead of a pageant, there were these two dolls that came out that just get wrecked in the scene. (laughs) It's just extreme. And I would get asked when I would do discussions, why do you love Timon? This is the kind of party he throws. And I said, yes, but listen to what he says about friendship. And of course, it's challenging to listen to anything when you're watching, you know, people (laughs) rip guts out of a calf. But, <laughs> you know, but what he says about friendship and the need for friendship and the way we should treat each other is actually quite in tune, I think, with the way Apomantis thinks about friendship. It's just that Timon, within his nature, has all of this. The problem is that within the, the structure of the society, that is not kind of allowed to be what guides him. Policy. Policy. But his conscience is really quite pure. And for me, playing Appomantis, that is what was worth saving. So it is it is worth saving that nature as opposed to the policy of the court. Lovely. And so it becomes a play. I mean, it sounds like the play that you were in, the time in that you were in, becomes a play about friendship. Yes, a play about friendship. I think the play about in its own way a, a love story, you know, without it being a romantic love story. But yes. 
think I needed to keep that one one good man, <laughs> you know, yeah. one good person intact and get him through this world without selling his soul in the way he was doing it. Right. But yeah, that it's ultimately about friendship. And so the loss is real. It was quite sad to finally leave him to overhear that he was going to take his own life, mm, which is yeah. what Appamantis overhears and steps back in and says, I'm going to tell everybody you have gold and you're not going to be left alone and you have to live. Live with the world as it is. Survive the world as it is. But live. But of course, he doesn't make that choice. I, so it's uh, painful. <laughs> and very painful. modern. Yeah. Gosh. Isn't that great? I mean, that's the thing that I want people to know about Shakespeare. That's why as a kid, you know, as a 14-year-old, 15-year-old, when I read Graciano's line from The Merchant of Venice, and all it was was a halter gratis from the courtroom scene of A Merchant of Venice, that was the image that just blew my mind. A halter gratis. Oh my God. He's saying he should just give him a rope to hang himself. And I mean, as a 15-year-old kid, the kind of hatred and racism in that was breathtaking. And at the same time, I'm going, wow, all of that is expressed in three words? Holy smokes, who is this guy? He's amazing. This, yeah, right? Vilma Silva, thank you. Thank you so much for being so generous with your time and for speaking with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Vilma. This is great to get to know you. Really love it. I'll have to let Amanda know I spoke to you. Yes. And Scott <laughs> Kaiser, please. And Scott Kaiser. And Scott Kaiser. I will yes. shoot him off an email right now. I'm Garrett Vandermeer. And I'm Jim Elliott. And thank you for listening to The State of Shakespeare. Thanks for joining us for the State of Shakespeare podcast. We invite you to visit stateofshakespeare.com for more episodes, information about each of our guests, and the Shakespeare text you heard on the program, and much more. And we welcome you to join the discussion by liking us on Facebook. That's www.stateofshakespeare.com. Thanks for listening.